Happy New Year! Yeah, Happy New Year, Gunner. Happy so New how, Year. how was your uh, break? It was really great. Um, this is the first break in a while where I've had an opportunity to really take it easy. Um, I don't think I opened up... I intentionally closed my mail for, it seems like, about two weeks. Um, and uh, the world continued to spin. Mm-hmm. Um, the sun rise and set... Uh, it was heartening. It was, it was, uh, it was a nice, uh, nice time to get away, spend some time with the family. Um, we had some family in from, from out of town and, uh, it was great. I had a wonderful time. How about you? That was good. It was good. Um, over the break, Lauren got to visit, uh, NASA and, uh, and spend the day up there. And she was working on the, uh, raspberry pie with, uh, the pie cam. And, mm-hmm. uh, she was doing some stuff like hook had it hooked up to a breakout board and and using like um basically like if you open a door with a magnetic sensor it would it would take a picture um and so just as like a proof of concept so it was more than just having the camera take a picture from the command line but um using the gpio pins to read hardware and everything so she brought me in um to see what she's working on so i was, I was a proud proud daddy for her to be able to knock that out in a day um so it was cool. Yeah, oh, that's great. Yeah, and then uh, the uh, I was I was pleased to see the uh, best of open hardware in 2014 on opensource.com. Uh, Lauren got mentioned for like three of our articles, and uh, we even got mentioned um, for interviewing Lauren in one of them. So um, we owe Lauren for uh, uh, <laughs> getting us some uh, visibility there. So and then um, speaking of Raspberry Pis, I got a. A Raspberry Pi B plus for Christmas, and um, I was playing with it, and I was, I I don't know, like you know the, um, one of the things that that they talk about is that they've cleaned up the electrical so it consumes less power, mm-hmm. um, and and I don't know if the the original B is this power efficient, but I I hooked up my kilowatt uh, to it, and and so I could see how much. Uh, energy it was using and it, it's only using like one watt like running full out I, I was really surprised huh well that's great so what, what distinguishes the uh, b plus from the other raspberry Pis? Mm-hmm. so the b plus is an evolution of the the model b and so what the, one of the problems with the the b was that it only had two usb ports on it so you could plug in a usb mouse and a usb keyboard but you didn't you ran out of ports to add like a a Wi-Fi, a USB Wi-Fi adapter. Um, so then you would have to get a hub, and you almost always needed a hub, and then you'd have to power the hub and all that. And it, so it was just a big pain. So um, one of the improvements is it went from two to four USB ports. So that that was pretty cool. And then um, and then in addition to the electrical improvements, and um, they added um, it went from using uh, an SD card to using a micro SD card, uh, which is I think a little bit more modern, so that's mm-hmm. that's kind of cool. Um, and then um, the other thing that they did was that they've added more GPIO pins to it. So I think it went from like 26 to like 40 pins, and they're they sort of are freezing on the 40 pin design. Uh, so people could uh, develop you know, uh, shields for it in a, a standardized way, very much like the way Arduino does it. So right, um, right. it's a nice little box. It's I'm I'm really happy with it. Oh, cool. Uh, so that that'll be your daily driver now. Instead of a laptop, you're gonna carry the Raspberry Pi around. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it, to me, I'm I'm looking. It's a solution looking for a problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's it. You know, it's you think about it. It's only consuming one watt, and 
you know, it's like a 60 watt light bulb. If you had 60 Raspberry Pis, that's consuming the electricity of, of one 60 watt light bulb. Um, so it's like, I just, I'm, I'm just trying to think up ways that I could, I could put it to work. No, that's great. That's great. Yeah. No oh, fun. Yeah. So I got a new credit card recently. Yeah. Uh, yeah. or rather a refresh of, of an old credit card. And, uh, apparently in the next year or so, um, all Visa, MasterCard and American Express are moving over to chip designs. Um, mm-hmm. so we're kind of catching up with the rest of the world. And I was like, oh, sweet. Now I can use my card in Canada, for instance, uh, where mm-hmm. they, you know, where they've definitely moved over in Europe, where they've moved over to these chip and pin designs. But it turns out it's not a chip and pin design. It's a chip and signature design. What is that? Yeah. So, uh, so it has a magnetic stripe. So it works just like the old cards did. Uh, right. But it also has the chip in it. And if you use the chip reader, uh, I guess the chip is supposed to be um, less prone to skimming. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. so, or more difficult to fake, uh, which is great, I guess. Um, but I couldn't figure out like why anyone would, if I'm a merchant, um, I'm going to have to pay for new equipment. Maybe, um, why would I go through the effort to adopt this chip design? Uh, if I can still use the old design. Um, yeah. and, uh, I learned that the, uh, merchants are now going to be liable for any fraud that's committed with a magnetic stripe. Oh, Wow, pretty clever. So that's right? that's going to encourage them to uh, upgrade their uh, uh, to to be chip only because I'm sure the magnetic strip was for legacy uh, card reader yep. uh, in deployments until they cut over and probably a couple, like five years from now you won't be able to find one anywhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or sooner than that if uh, if the merchants are going to be liable for for fraud on it. Yeah, um, I just I thought that was really interesting. A nice little. Uh, kind of all stick, no carrot approach to doing this transition. <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, pretty cool. But unfortunately, no pins on these chips. So uh, you know, you use it instead of swiping the magnetic stripe. You just slide it into the card reader, and it and it reads the card. Um, I don't know why they they're not adopting the pin. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, it was it seems kind of. I don't know. It seems a little bit silly. Like if it's already got a magnetic stripe, uh, I'm not sure that my uh, security has been materially improved. Um, yes. Uh, I don't know. I guess, I guess we'll see. I'm a little bit disappointed. I was really looking forward to the chip and pin stuff. Well, what about for the, uh, like restaurants and all that, mm-hmm. like you hand your card to somebody, you're not going to tell them your pin. Oh so yeah. I- so yeah, in Europe and in Canada, the way that, the way that it works is, uh, the, the, your waiter, waitress, waitron, mm-hmm. uh, will, uh, has a handheld device, um, mm-hmm. that they walk mm-hmm. over to your table uh, you drops your card in and then they hand it over to you and you type the pin in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how the, that's how it's done. Yeah, um, it makes sense. Which yeah. makes a lot more sense. Uh, it certainly makes more sense than a signature, which is just a dumb way of securing a card. Um, yeah, right. Just like, yeah, totally. Yeah. But anyway, um, so in another news, uh, as I mentioned, I got family in town. So I spent a lot of time playing, um, Sim city, uh, mm-hmm. which I haven't played in years. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the the new version, well, I say new, I mean new to me. It's been around, been out for about two years. But uh, SimCity is super fun and way more fun than I remember it being. Um, and the simulation is really sophisticated. Um, you need to worry about sewage uh, and trash and water and power just like you always did. Um, and the interactions between 
residential, commercial, and industrial zones is really interesting. I mean, the whole game is is super fun for this reason. In fact, I don't even play it as a game. I just, um, you know, put myself in God mode or whatever. I give myself an infinite amount of money and just uh, kind of play with the city as an ecosystem, right? So like, mm-hmm. oh, what happens if I, you know, drop a power plant here? Let's see what happens, you know, let's see what happens to the land value as, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, super nerdy, nerdy fun, um, and can strongly recommend it. Um, so fun, in fact, that I've actually deleted it off my machine, and I will no longer be playing it because it's become a huge time sink. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so on the on the order of civilization, uh, which I have also banned myself from. So yeah, it sounds very much like uh, like Minecraft or like like mm-hmm. you know, something that could grow and be very big and oh, yeah. like massively. Uh, scalable. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I've went, I've I've gone looking that you can actually get additional maps. So like, uh, you know, real world geography. Like, what if I wanted to do Tokyo, or what if I mm-hmm. wanted to do, you know, Austin or something like that? I could yeah. download Akron. maps of it. Yeah, yeah Akron, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. you could uh, be the um, mayor. Be the, <laughs> you could be the mayor of Akron. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, without the indictments, of course. But, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what are we, what are we talking about this week, Dave? Oh, we, we have some new features that we've we've added to the show. So we we, um, we, we officially have a mailbag now. Mm. Yep. Nice. Yep. I kind of imagine a, like a great big canvas bag with a cinch at the top. Is that? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah, we got a deal um, on one. Yep. And uh, <laughs> so we got a mailbag. We got a joke kit. We got uh, we're talking two factor authentication, and we're going to talk about the concept of unmanagement. Hmm. Excellent. Um, all right. So if folks want to link to uh, SimCity. Uh, or if they want to learn more about this uh, chip and signature stuff, or maybe they want to get themselves a uh, Raspberry Pi B+, uh, where, where should they go for something like that, Dave? They want to go to dgshow.org. So D's and Dave, G's and Gunner, show.org. Nice. And uh, a short little cutting room floor this week. Yeah. Yeah, we got, what, uh, Laura Mipsum for Beyonce photos <laughs> and a 3D printed gun that manufactures paper airplanes. Yeah, did I read that right? Did, is that? Mm-hmm. That's, that's what it is. That's what it does. Yeah, so it's um, you basically take a stack of paper, you stick it in like a like a laser printer cartridge sort of thing, you stick it in the back of this uh, this three D printed gun, and it will take like a flat piece of paper, and it'll suck the the, the paper in just like a laser printer, um, fold fold it into a paper airplane, and then shoot it out at people. That's awesome. Yeah, TSA would love that. That's right. That's right. They'd be high fiving you as you went through this. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, all right. So for the mailbag uh, this week is from a uh, friend of the show, Matt Mycini. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So it was uh, a long email, but uh, I guess we could summarize it. Um, where it, the thought was um, for large IT contracts uh, like NMCI, um, don't you lose tribal knowledge by doing outsourcing? And so how do you manage the desired end state of a multi-year contract like that? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And we're actually, I hope we're doing the question justice. Um, and Matt phrased it as like, th- it's like three paragraphs worth of questions and we kind of boiled it down to that. Um, and of course, NMCI is this kind of famously awful Navy contract um, for they had outsourced all of their, I think it's, the, it's their desktop machines, right? The Navy Marine Corps I forget what it stands for, but um, they had outsourced all their desktops uh, to uh, to a large contractor, and uh, it was like a ten year contract. Um, mm-hmm. And so they're basically like, okay, we're we're getting out of the desktop business, um, mm-hmm. says the Navy. We're going to hand it over to somebody else, and they're going to run it better than we can. And it just did not go well at all. Um, it kind of you know, one of the 
famously one of one of the poor performing contracts um, over time. And so Matt raises two really good questions, right? So um, what does the Navy do now that uh, everyone who knows how to run a desktop in the Navy uh, has been outsourced, right? Um, mm-hmm. The Navy doesn't have any internal expertise in this. Um, and then also, how do you manage a long-term contract like that, like a five-year contract or a 10-year contract, especially, you know, I talk about this a lot when Moore's Law turns, you know, turns over infrastructure every 18 months. Um, you don't even know what the world looks like in five years. Um, so yep. how do you write a contract that can, uh, that can uh, how do you write an effective contract that, that looks five years into the future? Um, to, to really good questions. I don't know, Dave. Do you have any do you have any uh, notions about this? Well, I you know I I think one of the things you got to worry about is you know if you totally outsource everything, um, you, you run the risk of of brain drain or everybody being like say like government employees moving to being contractors, um, and uh, so even when you go to you get mad at that contractor and you want to put things up for bid, do you have the um, the the technical chops to be able to ask for you know what you want um, if if all the smart people are elsewhere. Um, another thing to, that I know that from working for a contractor way long time ago is that uh, for contractors to get trained, um, it was always a, a difficult thing because the contractors don't want to pay for uh, training up their staff because that eats into their margin, and the government doesn't want to pay for the training of of the contractors because they feel that it's the job of of the contractor to make sure that they're supposed to provide smart people to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you you know so then you end up you may have a lot of smart people, but over time, the longer that they stay at that contractor. Um, Possibly the dumber they'll get, or the you know their their skills will atrophy because they don't have the opportunities to get the training. And like you said, you know you have these Moore's law iterations, and and how do you keep the keep their people sharp? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think the another interesting well, kind of another angle on this is um, yeah, there's a brain drain problem, but uh, it's not as if especially for something like, say, managing a fleet of desktop PCs, it's not like this is like a specialized skill, right? Um, it's a fairly repeatable process, and if you're doing it for whoever, J.P. Morgan, uh, presumably you'd be able to do it for the Navy as well, right? Um, so it's not like we're talking about uh, some exotic set of skills. It's a set of relatively repeatable skills, which makes outsourcing it pretty safe, I would think. Um, but on the other hand, you're, you're right. You know, um, Outsourcing a project is going to um, is going to make it less likely that you'll know what to ask for, um, when the time comes around or, you know, even worse, uh, it makes it less likely that you will know when things are going badly. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, we saw this on an MCI and, um, I remember when I was visiting the UK, we saw a lot of this, you know, about 10 years ago, the UK government outsourced, uh, almost all of its IT to large contractors and nothing wrong with that inherently or nothing wrong with the contractors inherently, but just because of the way the economics work and the way, you know, as you said, as the way training uh, plays out. Um, the government 10 years later wanted to change its mind and wanted to go do something else, uh, but didn't even have the expertise internally to know what it is that they wanted or how they wanted things to be different or even what was possible. Um, mm-hmm. and so that's definitely a danger to it. I, um, and this kind of falls out from, uh, actually these two questions are, are related. Um, so how do you deal with like losing your tribal knowledge and then how do you deal with these kind of large multi-year contracts? Well, those two things are related, right? If you have a large multi-year contract that you're not examining or scrutinizing periodically, um, you can get into real trouble. Um, and, 
uh, it's got me thinking about the notion of incumbency. Um, so what would it be if you had to recompete that contract every year? Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, make it make sure that the contractor stays competitive. Um, what would it be if uh, you were not allowed to hold the contract for more than a year and you had to go, you had to turn over, um, you had to turn over with some frequency um, mm-hmm. that would ensure would create a bunch of friction, right? Organizational friction, um, because it's hard to transition programs like this, but, um, maybe that's not a bad thing, right? Um, maybe building the contract so that it can be run by a different person every year. Um, maybe that's, a. uh, yeah. Well, and also maybe making it modular so that, um, and, and loosely coupled mm-hmm. so that you, you don't, you know, it's not like the JSF for desktop management. Right. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, you could you could have, oh, I I need printer dudes and I need I need people to do storage. I need people to do databases. And mm-hmm. um you you sort of define what those modules are and, and what the interfaces are and, and allow people to be plugged in and, and um I think that could help too. Cause the other part is if you think about the um the IT industry itself, you know, think about the server manufacturers from years ago to today, um, whether it's, you know, that they weren't the companies that, you know, that they aren't the companies uh, today that they were five, 10 years ago. Think about like IBM, who doesn't have like an x86 product line anymore, or um, the whole, you know, uh, compact deck and, and all that stuff. And, and you lock in with somebody for a very long term. Um, and what happens if, you know, they make business decisions that, um, that affect that too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, although I like the idea of modularity. I mean, that appeals to me uh, for a you know for a bunch of reasons. That's kind of by default. That's kind of how I would think about a project like this. But wouldn't that create you know when you talk about talk to the DevOps guys, right? They talk about uh, reducing the number of handoffs in an organization. And if you're siloing your contract into like printer guys, database guys, server guys, whatever, um, then you're increasing the number of handoffs from one group to another. Um, and wouldn't that actually interfere with your overall effectiveness? Um, because you're dealing with all these interactions between different groups who are probably even belong to different contractors. Um, mm-hmm. And this is actually the whole premise behind having a prime contractor, right? Is so that like one person is in charge of the overall thing and then they're going to sub it out to specialists in, in particular ways. Um, so how would that, how would that be, how would encouraging that modularity, how would that be different than the system that we've already got in place? Yeah, I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know. And I, 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 I honestly don't know. And I, I don't know how, um, that would play out, but I, I I could just imagine of like you think about something like say OpenStack from a software example mm-hmm. uh, that allows you know you have things that are modular that have well defined boundaries and allows you to to plug and play different things. But um, if you can if you define the interfaces so you don't have to do as many handoffs, maybe mm-hmm. that could help with uh, minimize the amount of friction from. Uh, interchangeability because I, I could also imagine the printer guys don't need to interface as much with say like the desktop people outside of making sure that um, you know these are the printers we had and here are the drivers and that's it and maybe they got to talk to the network people to make sure it's on the network mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right right I, I... I mean, it's a, this is, we could probably go on for another 45 minutes about ways that we would design an MCI to be more effective. But um, I don't know. I think the moral of the story is that it's like, it's just, it's hard. And oh, yeah. the system is built like this and contracts like an MCI get negotiated the way that they are for good reasons, right? Um, you know, the Navy needs a 
10-year contract because they don't maybe they don't have the bureaucratic capacity to renegotiate the contract every year. Um, maybe the prime contractors can't spin up uh, an organization to manage X million desktops um, without like a 10-year commitment from the government, right? Um, this uh, I think a lot of people think about um, bad, poorly designed contracts or poorly executed contracts as being um, uh, maybe incompetence, but also, you know, kind of bad, you know, they attribute bad intention to it um, or greed or avarice or, you know, something like this. But um, I think if, you know, you peel the covers back and I think a lot of the decisions made on contracts like these are made in good faith. Um, They just happen to be bad choices (laughs) over time. Um, So an NMCI contract that made a ton of sense in year zero um, after year two or year three starts not looking like such a great idea. Um, And I guess, uh, you know, again, I've talked about this a lot, but I, I think when you're designing or building a contract like this, it's not so much figuring out what the perfect structure is going to be because the structure is going to change, right? Um, moving from desktops and now the advent of you know these the mobile devices, right? Well, that changes your desktop situation completely. And yep. so when you're doing a large contract, um, the longer the term of that contract, the more important it is uh, to... Uh, really kind of optimize for change, right? Optimize for your ability to adapt to these different, uh, to these different functions. Um, and maybe that increasing the adaptability of a contract, maybe that, maybe that means, maybe that means shortening the term of the contract. Um, mm-hmm. maybe it means breaking it up into kind of functional modular areas, uh, or maybe it means, uh, a whole nother set of approaches. But, um, the idea that you could build a contract that will work and work function perfectly for 10 years is, um, I mean, that's just silly, right? Um, mm-hmm. you, ha- you have to uh, build some notion of evolution and learning um, into, a, into a contract like that in order for it to be effective over time, seems like. Yeah, and, and also, you know, hopefully the, the, the contractors that are bidding on it are doing the things like specifying that, oh, well, my people need to be trained in the government or, or as part of the contract you know, you, you got to help pay to, you know, keep the people smart that are supporting you. Right. For example. Yeah. No, that's great. You know, this reminds me, Dave, of, uh, that Clay Shirky quote about, uh, the waterfall method. Um, as it being the, uh, the waterfall method is a promise by all parties not to learn anything while doing the actual work. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Oh, uh, all right. Joke kit. I'm ready yeah. for a joke. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, this is a kit, so it's uh, some assembly required here. So you remember uh, how I was uh, fostering, uh, or at least the, the family was fostering cats. Right. Um, yeah. And then we were also talking about uh, the Keurig with uh, doing DRM mm-hmm. with the coffee. Sure. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so now uh, I've come across, there's now a cat litter box that has, uh, uh, it's enhanced with uh, DRM. <laughs> the... How, I don't even understand how that would work. Uh, what, mm-hmm. uh, how does that work and what problem does it solve? <laughs> yeah, so it's Cat Genie is, mm-hmm. is the product. And so it's a fully automated self-washing uh, litter box. So it's connected to, I guess, your water pipe um, and electricity and sewer. So it will, you know, it's basically, I guess, some sort of robotic self-cleaning thing that will... Um, you know, you you have this cartridge that is filled with this uh, cleaning solution, mm-hmm. and then the cleaning solution will spray inside the the litter box and get it all clean and and ready for the next use for the cat. 
and but the thing is, is that that cartridge with the cleaning fluid in it um, is uh, it has an RFID chip in it that uh, helps you keep track of how much solution it has. And once it runs out, um, you can't refill the cartridge with solution. You have to buy a new cartridge, and so it's about three hundred fifty bucks a year. That's how um, they get you. Yeah, that's how they, they're mm-hmm. they're not selling razors. They're selling razor blades. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. Is that well, Dave? So you've taken. It's been a while since I've had a cat in my house. Um, but uh, you've you've taken care of these cats. Is is would you pay three hundred fifty dollars a year uh, to uh, to not worry about the litter box? Not when you have a fifteen year old daughter to do it in exchange <laughs> for having the right to have a cat. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, I would ask Lauren that, and then you you have to balance that with her allowance and whether. 350 bucks a year is worth it. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess too, like if you travel a lot, I could imagine, I, I've seen the robotic feeders where, you know, that, that are on like a timer that will open up and then the cat food comes out. And, you know, so you, for as much as we travel, we could be gone and, you know, you know that you're going to come home and the cat will most likely not, you know, uh, tore the place up or died or anything. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I can imagine there would be some value for it for certain people. See, but I see, I think about a tool like this and I'm thinking that's hackable, right? Uh, there's mm-hmm. got to be a there's got to be a way to uh, to get in there and and make this thing do something it wasn't designed to do. Yep, yep. And so fortunately, the uh, Cat Genie community came together and they <laughs> uh, did their own custom firmware for it. Um, and they also have a cartridge emulator. So, <laughs> so two things. One, so the custom firmware get it doesn't uh, remove the problem with the cartridge and the the DRM and all that. All it does just allow you to um, you can hack the cat genie to do, I guess, more impressive things. I, I didn't spend enough time to look at what they were. Like um, fireworks and stuff, I guess. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> I think it does stuff on the display and it tells you, you know, stats or whatever. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other thing is that there's a cartridge emulator, which I think it's like an Arduino that attaches to the cartridge or that acts like a, a cartridge and it will, and it always reports back to the the cat genie saying that hey, I'm full, I'm full, I'm full. And and in the meantime, you could take the cartridge out and then reload it with your own cleaning solution and then plug it back in. See, this is okay. So now I'm going to tie these two conversations together because uh, one of the consequences of these multi-year contracts is like accumulated cruft in an organization, mm-hmm. right? Um, so uh, think of uh, so after ten years of running a desktop. Uh, desktop support organization, you're going to have, say, a ticketing system, right? And that ticketing system is going to have a whole bunch of hacks on top of it. It's going to have uh, a bunch of, um, well, let's call it like uh, inertial uh, kind of accumulations in it, right? Um, technical debt. Technical debt is what they is what they will have built up. And um, and what you end up with is you know, this crazy kind of Rube Goldberg, which um, works for like a pretty specific set of circumstances, um, but isn't very, isn't very open to change or to evolution or to learning. Right. Um, and, uh, when you see something like the cat genie and, uh, people have to create an Arduino based cartridge emulator to get around the DRM system. Um, that's exactly the same thing, right? It's, it's, um, you know, the, uh, what am I trying to say about that? Is the, the, uh, that is a good indication that your platform is not as open to innovation as you would like. If you have a product and you're lucky enough to have a community built up around it that's like building custom firmware and stuff, um, you want them to be making the product more awesome um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not building hacks around the limitations in your product, right? 
Um, and so it seems like this Cacini community is almost in an adversarial relationship with the product designers um, rather than uh, being, uh, um, rather than enhancing uh, the product experience. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, unless that there were um, people in the, in the uh, Cat Genie community that said that, oh, we would love to have that feature and it would be so much better to have DRM enabled um, cat <laughs> right. things to, you know, for, for the user experience um, to enhance it. Yeah, I guess so. Okay, so I'm sure that's what their marketing people would say. Right, right. So, so I guess to draw to draw a larger lesson, if you are focusing your innovation experience on uh, getting around limitations in an existing system um, instead of actually directly enhancing the system, um, then your process and your product are probably broken. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Speaking of broken uh, processes, uh, it's a good this. Uh, so this NYPD assassin. Um, was caught recently, right, in New York. Mm -hmm. um, this guy, he had killed his girlfriend in Baltimore or Philadelphia um, and then had gone up and, and assassinated those two officers. Um, turns out there's an IT angle to this story, right? Yep, yep, yeah. So he uh, he used uh, the app called Waze uh, to uh, identify where cops were um, and, uh, um, and I guess they were using it to crowdsource police sightings. And this is for... Mostly innocuous reasons, right? I mean, I know ways as like a way of crowdsourcing like speed traps and stuff like that. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's the kind of thing it's like, um, you know, we've talked about ways before, um, where it's like almost like the, um, 21st century CB radio mm -hmm. where people can report that, uh, instead of doing the smoky report over the CB, um, you know, they, they could do it over ways and let people know that, Oh, Hey, there's a speed trap coming up and, um, and then, you know, people can slow down or adjust their behavior appropriately. But in this case, um, there's, uh, you know, that people were uh, are debating is like, is, is something like that of being able to say where the police are, is that a good thing or, um, or is that a bad thing? So like, like for instance, in where I live um, in my town, it's, you know, it's, it's a big geographic area. There are a finite number of police officers and, if somebody knows where every one of those police officers are, um, they might be able to um, perpetrate a crime. Um, and knowing that that you know nobody is going to you know there there's no police around, and and that would encourage crime. Uh, okay, I'm trying to think 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 this all the way through. I, um, I mean, I suppose maybe, um, but. Let me get my thoughts together about that. Yes. Well, let's say let's say um, you wanted to do a drug deal, and you knew that there were um, five cops and five cop cars in your town, and you knew that um, all five cop cars are elsewhere, like many many blocks away or miles away. Mm -hmm. um, you would be open for business, and then you would get an alert in your app saying, "Hey, the cops are are coming down your street." You could close up shop and wait until they drive past and they're uh, a, a good enough distance away, and then you could reopen for business again. Right, right. Well, I guess what I, I guess what I'm, I'm I guess what I'm trying to wrap my head around is um, that's always the case, right? Um, it used to be that you just hired a 12 year old to sit on a street corner and uh, yeah. you know and call you on a on a 
on a walkie-talkie or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is just a like a, just just kind of a natural extension of that same of that same thing. Um, I guess what worries me about that line of inquiry is kind of what the what prescription would come out at the end of it, um, because like whatever comes out at the other end of that is some kind of limit on our ability to monitor the police, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, and you know, if, <laughs> you know, as we've seen. There's a lot to be said for uh, having additional scrutiny on the police and additional monitoring on the police, uh, both for the police's sake and for the and for the public's sake. Um, you know, so we saw this you know injection of um, you know, lapel cameras uh, yep. for the police, right? And that's kind of widely acknowledged as being a good thing, um, and uh, will have a you know a positive intention. Um, yeah, I'm trying to. Th- there's no public good, I think, to come from trying to curtail this kind of. Um, this kind of monitoring the police force, I, I wouldn't think it makes. It, I'm not saying it makes the cops' jobs easier. Um, mm-hmm. It, it mm-hmm. probably doesn't. Um, but pretending like this technology that doesn't exist just means, or actually, banning this technology probably means um, ensuring that only criminals will have it. Right. Right. So I, I don't even think it would be possible to ban an app like that. So you know, you don't. Mm-hmm. Let, you know, you don't call it cop sightings. You know, whatever, you know, it's, it could be uh, kitten sightings or something or, or like, oh, I'm tracking deer or something. And, um, you know, and or you could take an existing app that would be used for tracking deer or kittens or whatever and repurpose it for, for that, too. So right. Um, right. I, I think that would be pretty hard to stop. So speaking of the surveillance state, mm-hmm. Santa Claus. Yes. Yes. Yeah, as as we're wrapping up the uh, holiday season, um, I, I saw an article from uh, Bruce Schneier. He put on his blog, um, so about uh, Santa Claus and the surveillance state, and he he points to an article that somebody else wrote that talks about how um, it, Elf on a Shelf. Like I don't know, like you were talking about developing uh, Christmas traditions with your son and all that. I don't know if uh, Elf on the Shelf is one of your. Uh, uh, Targeted things, no, uh, explicitly forbidden. But uh, but go ahead. Okay, so for and I didn't know what Elf on the Shelf was until just recently, until uh, about a year or so ago. Somebody explained it to me. I didn't know that that was a thing. But for those that don't know what Elf on on the Shelf is, um, is uh, it's about this this elf doll that sits around the house and moves around and is always watching children and reporting back to Santa. And so kids have to be good. And so somebody wrote this paper saying that, um, well, children, they may not touch the doll and they must accept that the doll watches them at all times with the purpose of reporting to Santa Claus. And that this is different from uh, the more conventional play with dolls where children create play worlds um, uh, born of their imagination, moving dolls and determining interactions with people and other dolls. Instead, the elf encourages children to accept or even seek out external observation of their actions outside of their caregivers and familial structures. That's a really well put. I mean, Elf on the Shelf is creepy to me, um, but I don't think I could have put it quite so eloquently. I think that's that's exactly the problem. I mean, it's the, <laughs> this idea of like Elf on the Shelf as being, um, it, it is literally like, you know, an infantilization right? Um, Mm -hmm. it's, you're taking what should be something innate, which is, uh, your sense of right and wrong or your sense of duty and externalizing it onto something else. Right. And that Mm -hmm. is, I mean, and that's the most dangerous thing about the, about the surveillance state, right? It's this, 
um, it's this extraction of responsibility from individuals and placing all that responsibility onto the state um, or onto the elf on the shelf. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Is it real? I mean, really. I mean, maybe maybe I'm being a little bit hyperbolic about this because I'm a new father, but I mean, I, it's really destructive. Yeah, like you could imagine a Twilight Zone episode of like a break, a Big Brotherized version of Elf on the Shelf, and instead of it being a cute little elf, it's like uh, um, Big Brother or or you know, it's it's a little thing that's watching you all the time or whatever. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, actually, it doesn't even have to be a, a Twilight Zone or a Black Mirror episode. It could actually be just the front page of the Washington Post last week. Um, yeah. I mean, it's like that's. I mean, it's very literally what you know what we're talking about, and you know the reason you and I talk so much about uh, you know talking about the NSA and all the surveillance and Twitter and Facebook and all the rest of it is, um, it really is a. I mean, this is a you know this is a real concern, and it, and it has real effects on society and culture. It's not just a set of like narrow privacy concerns um mm-hmm. i mean these have like these have broader significance for um like i really like how they put this to accept or even seek out external observation of their actions outside of their caregivers and familiar structures uh yeah exactly um and then it doesn't just apply to children right it applies to uh, adults moving through mm-hmm. the world um well could it could it be also looking at it from a different angle could it be used as a constructive teaching tool to show kids that you know, um, the state is watching you. So behave yourself or, you know, you're, you're being observed in multiple ways and, and it's not an ideal world, but it is sort of the reality. And, and well, I'm not, I'm that, not advocating yeah. it, but I'm, I'm just saying yeah. that, well, how do you, how would you teach a child about, you know, not like I, I would always tell Lauren, it's like, don't put anything on the internet that you wouldn't want to see on the front page of the local newspaper. Right, but when you say that to her, you're you're inculcating a moral sense in her, right? An uh, in, in internal compass as to what is right and wrong, um, and you're tying it directly to consequences for her, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to um, do this thing. You know, um, <laughs> so there's a there's an there's an anarchist uh, um, back in the early part of the century, Ammon Hannessy, um, and whenever the judge brought him up on charges, he says, uh, you know. Did you know, you know, Ammon, do you know you broke the law? And Ammon says, oh, judge, your damn law is no good. The good people don't need them and the bad people don't follow them. So what's the use? Um, <laughs> and that's, uh, and it's that sense of, uh, of morality that you want people to be working in and not in some like narrowly constructed set of like sticks and carrots that coerce good behavior, right? You want the good behavior to actually start from somebody, you know, start from inside someone, um, and so it just seems to be rewarding the wrong thing. It's a, actually, hey, look, uh, turns out this has already been written about extensively. Um, uh, you know, Anthony Burgess in uh, Clockwork Orange, um, that's exactly what that book and what that movie's about, right? Um, the sense of, uh, you know, and it's called Clockwork Orange because it's something that's organic, um, but inside is mechanical, right? And if we tr- start treating people um, as if they were mechanical and, and, yeah, treating just their external behaviors um, for good or for ill, um, we're not really acknowledging the, the humanity in them. Right. Um, and that's kind of at the core of this surveillance stuff or at the, uh, the core of this, this elf on the shelf notion. I don't know. I'd, anyway, you probably can get the sense. I find this really corrosive. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Glad, glad I never did it. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. And Lauren turned out great. And Lauren yep. turned out great. Okay. So, so Dave cleanse, cleanse my palate here. I, I need to, uh, I need some FAA news, uh, to yeah. clear my head. 
Yeah. So as as you're looking to uh, looking forward to traveling extensively this year, um, the FAA has uh, changed a ruling regarding uh, air travel with musical instruments. Huh. Uh, so what were the rules, and and how have they changed? Yeah. So like if uh, I guess maybe there was no rule, but um, but the the problem that people were having was that like let's say you have your your uh, double neck. 12 string electric guitar and you're, you're like trying to put it on the, the, you know, carry on, uh, <laughs> and they, the airlines wouldn't let you do it. Um, and, uh, and they would make you either gate check it or, you know, check it to your destination. And now the FAA has ruled that if there is overhead space, um, available, you know, when you get on board, um, you can use that, um, as your overhead space. Um, and, and, you know, you could, if it could fit, you could put it in there. Um, also if, um, if you, uh, if it can't fit in the overhead and you don't want to check it, you, you're also welcome to, uh, buy a seat and put your musical instrument in the seat next to you. So like if you have a tuba or, or I don't know what, but yeah. Right. So, so, uh, Jakob Astorius is delighted and, uh, all the manufacturers of those, uh, hardened carbon fiber instrument cases, uh, are now weeping. Uh, yeah, the the lobbyists for yeah for those guys they they blew it yeah <laughs> yeah 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 and the, Pel- the Pelican people yeah <laughs> uh, let's see so speaking of blowing it Sony mm-hmm. man that hack is extraordinary yep. um what a disaster I we, everybody already knows all the news we don't need to rehash it but uh but you found a, a relevant uh, help wanted listing yeah. Yeah, they, they have a job opening yeah, for uh, <laughs> director of vulnerability management. I don't know if it was a recently created vacancy or um, <laughs> they decided to, that having somebody do this job would be a good idea. Um, <laughs> there is a job opening uh, for it. It's interesting you say that. I recently started helping a friend of the show, Matthew Burton, with his podcast uh, called uh, Let's Talk Calmly About Security and Privacy. Yeah, it's um, great. And so the... And so this last episode, um, uh, he and I were uh, talking with uh, Jeff Carr, who uh, runs a security outfit. And uh, he had talked about during the last Sony hack in 2011, uh, when the Sony game network got hacked, mm-hmm. that uh, they brought in a bunch of security experts and the executives at Sony were so intransigent about their security stuff that the only change that they could put into place um, for the for the Sony game network uh, was to force users to change their passwords every two hours. Wow. And that was the only reform that they were able to pull off, which just speaks volumes about Sony's attitude towards this kind of thing. Um, so, yeah. Uh, in one sense, Director of Vulnerability Management at Sony, you know, can't fall off the floor, right? Certainly yeah. going to do better than the last guy. Um, but on the other hand, it doesn't sound like that organization is... Uh, ready to set you up for success in a position like that. Or maybe they are now finally, like they, they, there's enough scrutiny that it's like, no, we got to do this right. And, um, you know, it's, it's like a, a lot of companies that face, uh, you know, the crisis things and, and they actually do clean up their act. Maybe, um, maybe I'm being right. optimistic, but yeah. Right. Like, uh, like Tylenol, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose you're right. Um, although I'm not particularly hopeful. I, uh, it was that conversation was interesting. Actually, we talked a little bit about um, the role of insurance in mm-hmm. in something like this. Like Sony was insured to about sixty million dollars 
uh, for a computer security incident. Um, and I and I can't help but wonder if insurance makes companies complacent on stuff like this. It's hard to yep. imagine Sony being complacent after having all their internal emails aired out in public. But um, uh, I think insurance, while necessary, um, might make folks a little more blasé or a little yep. more casual about security than uh, than maybe they should be. Yeah. Well, and sixty million dollars, I think this is going to cost them more than sixty million dollars. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. Yeah, Jeff, know, that's, that was what Jeff yeah. was saying that like sixty million dollars only co- doesn't even cover the forensics, right? For yeah. <laughs> to to deal with something like this. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Oh, terrible. Yeah, and then it's also like the you you hear about the retailers with you know it's like oh or or the moral hazards with you know using credit cards and everything. It's like oh I'll I'll use my credit card because I know. I'm only liable for the first fifty dollars or whatever if there's if it gets compromised and um, mm-hmm. and you know it's where the responsibility goes and and moving that responsibility like we said earlier in the show from the the card uh, holder or the the you know the card company to the merchant and make making them have more skin in the game for the security I I think improves things. Yep. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, speaking of culpability. Uh, mm-hmm. JP Morgan yep. breached. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So they got breached. It was a while ago, but um, one of the reports that came out was that uh, they, one of the reasons that they got hacked was that um, they did not do two factor authentication. And and that was one uh, of the reasons why they got hacked. Actually, and same thing with the Sony hack. Uh, the Apparently, the, the, the vector for the Sony hack was actually brute forcing passwords. Mm. Wow. Yeah, which is just amazing. Um, yeah, two-factor authentication, super important. Um, Dave, what's an easy way for me to uh, get two-factor authentication going inside my organization? Use RHEL 7.1. Hmm. Tell mm-hmm. me more. Yep. So, um, well, and, and so I don't know if it's going to be GA, um, but it's, uh, or I mean, it may be a tech preview whenever RHEL 7.1 goes GA, but if you take a look at RHEL 7.1, which is in beta right now, um, it includes uh, our identity management offering uh, based upon free IPA, and that includes um, one-time password capabilities uh, that is standards-based. So you can imagine all the people that spent like crazy money on using uh, like RSA or Secure ID, you know, dongles and stuff like that. Um, now we provide that capability in open source. Uh, built into the operating system for no extra charge, and and so that's that's pretty cool, and also works with YubiKey too. Oh, that's great! That's wonderful. Uh, I mean, that's especially useful. Um, I mean, when you and I are traveling, you know, get on the hotel Wi-Fi, and uh, you don't really know who's going to be listening. You know, I noticed mm-hmm. that uh, like when I open up my, I don't know if you've ever done this, like when you open up your computer and then take a look at uh, who's announcing themselves on the network. I get to see all the MacBooks, um, you yep. know, in all the guest rooms, right? Um, yep. a little bit, a uh, little bit creepy. Um, so, which, which is one reason why when I'm, if I can, I don't use the hotel Wi-Fi. I'll use my, my personal Wi-Fi instead. Mm, okay. Um, just for, just for, for the illusion of, of additional security. Um, yeah. do you, do, uh, do you do the same thing? Do you, do you use, a, do you uh, use your own hotspot? No, no, I, I do. I use the hotel Wi-Fi, but I, I tend to turn on, uh, the VPN and, you know, to mm-hmm. encrypt as much as I can. Right, right, and and also make uh, uh, conscious decisions as far as like, um, you know, I'm not going to buy like a car or something, you know, and from a hotel room. <laughs> so, right. yeah. So it's yeah. like I, I 
I minimize what I try to do. And, and the other thing that I do too is from a two-factor authentication standpoint is I try to use that wherever possible. Mm-hmm. You know, wherever, mm-hmm. wherever yeah, it's sure. available. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so speaking of hotel Wi-Fi, uh, did mm-hmm. you see Marriott is trying to uh, shut down your hot, our, our hotspots? Yeah, yeah. So what they're they're uh, they they're petitioning the FCC to do that do blocking. Yeah, yeah. They want to they want to block anyone's Wi-Fi who is not their Wi-Fi. Um, and uh, and here's the reasoning: uh, they want to prevent uh, rogue wireless hotspots. Uh, rogue mm-hmm. here, you can interpret as yours. Um, yeah. Because they can cause degraded service, insidious cyber attacks, and identity theft. Uh, the only thing missing there is a uh, mention of child porn. Yeah, um, would, crafty uh, terrorists. They would have rounded yeah. up crafty terrorists. That's right. Yeah. Um, God, it's terrible. And actually, Marriott got the bad press for this, but um, it's actually the um, uh, it's actually a trade association. Um, so uh, Hilton and the other guys are all signed on to this as well. Um, they're yeah. all asking for this uh, for this ability. Um, well, I'm sure their just... their customers are asking for it, which is why they're do- <laughs> right. they're doing it. And you know, it's like, oh, I, I need to pay you 120 dollars per you know, log in to use it in a conference center and yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, we do, we do, you know, I just was recently at a show, I think it was actually in a Marriott. Um, and, uh, I asked the, the conference organizer, you know, Hey, can I get on the Wi-Fi? And they're like, no, we only got one login. If we, if it was going to be an open Wi-Fi for the event, it would have been like $5,000 a day or something like that. Yeah. Um, and for a room of like 200 people, uh, yeah. which is just insane. We could have bought everybody their own 4g hotspot for that amount of money right yep. um just but then crazy. and then people could well would it block your 4g hotspot then if you go to use that well yeah unless it's so what they're planning on doing or what they what they want what they're asking the fcc for the ability to do is block everyone's wi-fi transmission except for their own um mm-hmm. how that's technically possible i'm not sure but um and in fact now that i'm thinking about it this is getting even more ridiculous so so say I want to block all the Wi-Fi in my neighborhood except for mine. Um, so the only way to the only way to block it that I know of would be uh, to block um, everyone everyone's channel except for the channel that I'm broadcasting on, right? So mm-hmm. between channels one and fourteen or whatever it is, I'm gonna I'm gonna be on seven, so I'm gonna block channels one through six and channels eight through fourteen. What that's gonna do is force everyone else's Wi-Fi station to broadcast on channel set on channel seven. Mm-hmm. Um, which means that you are forcing everyone onto the same channel you're on, which is going to cause exactly the degraded service that they're complaining about. Yep. So maybe I just don't know enough about Wi-Fi, but this is uh, this is a terrible idea from top to bottom. I just and I find it really gross that they're asking for it. Yep. Hey, did you see, uh, did you see this uh, computer solve the uh, Erdos Erdos discrepancy problem? No. What happened there? Yeah, so the, so uh, this is a, one of these longstanding, you know, mathematical problems that nobody could noodle through um, by hand, and so they set a computer to the task. The computer solved it. Um, unfortunately, the resulting proof uh, weighs in at 13 gigabytes. Wow, which is longer than the entire Wikipedia. So the the problem now is that they have a solution. They think they have a solution, but in order to basically double check the work, they have to go through 13 gigabytes of logic. Um, hmm. in order to in order to prove it out um so they may have one, one problem and a completely new problem <laughs> they need to have need... another they, they need to have another <laughs> exactly. computer do the proof that, like check the proof <laughs> exactly you'll let the snake eat its tail um <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> these two computers wrestle with each other until the end of time 
So speaking of institutions engaged in uh, anti-competitive behavior, um, you heard about this service called Skiplagged? Yes. Yes, I did. And, and what it's a service that allows you to, um, it's, I guess it's almost like what a kayak or something like that, where you could search for flights that are, um, multi-connection flights where if you, um, say it's like a three leg flight. And if you, um, go to it, so if you buy three legs of the flight and you only use two and you get off at the second one, you could save a lot of money instead of doing the connection. Right. Yep. Yep, exactly. Um, and so incredibly useful service. Uh, and I was delighted to hear about them. Unfortunately, the way that I heard about them is the news that they're getting sued by Orbitz. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I, I presume because I don't know if it's like a patent thing or whether they were using the Orbit service to do discovery on the flights or whatever. But um, again, just gross. Like there's a perfectly useful feature. Um, and uh, and uh, and you know, it obviously like something that the public would want, um, and now getting sued, um, because, uh, they interfere with somebody's established business model. Kind of annoying. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess the whole point is that, um, let's say if I fly from Akron to Boston, Logan, and I connect in DC, that may be a super cheap flight. But if I fly, if I want to do like a, a direct flight from Akron to DC, that could be a lot more expensive. And so if I bought the Akron to uh, Boston through DC flight, and then just uh, decided to not get on the, the leg to Boston, I could, I could save some money that way. Um, mm -hmm. But what I found out though, is that whenever people would do that, what it'll do is it'll, if you book a round trip that way, um, it will actually cancel Right. the entire rest of your flight. So you, you would only want to book uh, one-way tickets to do that. And I think if you don't board the flight, you don't get frequent flyer miles uh, in, for the, the flight you actually flew on too. Yep, yep, that's right, that's right. I only needed to make that mistake once and uh, stranded myself in Phoenix uh, trying to be yeah. clever that way. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, uh, but I, I found actually for... Um, the one thing that's related to this is for like the there's a trip I'm taking next week where it would have the $150 change fee uh, for me to change flights. Um, it would have been like a lot more expensive for me to rebook my flight uh, to leave an extra day uh, than just buying an additional ticket for like $89 or something like that to to get home. And so. Mm -hmm. And and so instead of rebooking and paying the hundred fifty dollar change fee and the eighty nine dollars, I can just cancel the return trip and just write it off and then uh, take the eighty nine dollar flight home. Yep. Yep. I you know it, it's but again going back to uh, going back to the cat genie idea and going back to the NMCI story um, once again like here's a hack on top of a system that's broken right um, if. Uh, you know, if, if the airlines are trying to get people onto these planes and by creating these convoluted pricing schemes where, you know, perversely taking only two of three legs is going to be cheaper than, you know, uh, than just buying the a direct flight from one place to another. Um, schemes like that encourage this kind of hacking of the system, right? Like skip lagged is doing. Um, mm. And unfortunately for the, for the airlines, that means that they have unfulfilled capacity on those last legs, right? Yep. Um, if everybody gets into doing this, um, they are going to have to kind of seriously re-examine how they price these things out. Um, 
yeah, again, anyway, if, uh, you know, if somebody's built a business on top of your business, um, that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good signal, um, that, uh, that you have, uh, what unexploited opportunity, right. Um, I don't know, going to be more free ranging with this. I mean, this is how Amazon works, right? Amazon EC2 is this like incredible platform for, uh, for all kinds of work. Um, and they're famous for letting companies build up businesses on top of EC2 and using those kind of startups as, uh, canaries, uh, to figure out which businesses are viable or not. Um, and then, uh, immediately opening up a duplicate service that is kind of inside the EC2 family. Anyway, good. Anyway, uh, Amazon is a good example of, uh, of a company that knows what to do with a skip lagged type service, right? Um, the solution is not to sue them. Um, the solution is to, uh, simply solve the problem, uh, in a more central way, uh, rather than letting, uh, these kind of like limpet startups, um, that are attached to your business, uh, succeed. So have you ever heard of the term, uh, unmanagement or unleadership? Uh, no, I think I've been subject to both unmanagement and unleadership, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> not a, not, yeah. <laughs> not in a way that I would recommend to others. <laughs> yeah. So, the, well, there's, there's an open source.com article, um, that talked about this and there was a little like lightning talk, uh, that accompanied the, the article that, um, I thought it was pretty cool where, um, they talked about in, in, especially in the case of say like, uh, open source communities, um, where, and you could just generally, uh, think about this for any other type of leadership, um, where one of, uh, one of the quotes from the article is, when we focus too much on the leader, we diminish the work of the followers. So you, know, you think about um, you know, having this uh, benevolent dictator for life or, you know, or you're leading a team of people. If, um, if people are focusing too much on the team leader, that allows the, uh, allows the people to, uh, that are part of the team to leave it up to the leader to do all the heavy lifting or do all the work. Um, and so by focusing less on the leader of the team and more on the people on the team and you make it more about the team, um, you can get a lot more participation. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, it's, it's important to create room for people to succeed and be involved, right? Um, yep. Because if you get, uh, if you get too, if you're too much of an interventionist um, yes. as a leader or as a manager, um, you kind of suck all the air out of the room, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and and like I I know this I I've seen this firsthand whenever I would work with individual contributors that are moving into like a team lead role, uh, you know whether it's like a SME team or like an SA team lead role, um, and when you're an individual contributor for maybe all of your career, you know you're conditioned to it's like oh well this is my job so I need to do everything. And one of the key things of being a leader is being able to delegate and let other people um, give them a chance to, you know, be involved and be able to do things. And one mm -hmm. one other interesting quote, I forget where I heard it, but um, somebody said that if somebody can do an 80% good job, um, delegate it to them. And and that allows you to let, you know, more people get involved and, and don't, don't expect them to do like... Uh, you know, don't be a control freak and, and expect like a plus perfect work. Um, you know, just set your expectations that they'll do an 80% good job. Um, and the more that they do it, that 80% will be 85, 90, 95% and get better and better over time. But if mm -hmm. you expect perfection right away and you end up doing it all yourself, um, you're never going to let that person, um, have the opportunity to succeed. And then you end up doing all the work yourself as well. So it's, it's sort of like a double whammy. 
Right, right. I mean, this seems like good parenting advice as well. Probably, yeah. Not good. Uh, so, Dave, did you have any uh, New Year's resolutions? Yeah, so there was um, an article I saw that um, they talked about replacing I have to to I get to to be more thankful and mindful. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So instead of like saying um, I have to take out the trash, you, you could say I get to take out the trash. Um, and, and you want to say it with genuine excitement um, to help <laughs> give yourself, uh, you know, the, the, and to help change your perspective. So, um, so there are, so like, there are a lot of people that it's like, they, they would wish for the opportunity to take the trash out themselves, but for one reason or another, they're not physically or mentally capable of doing it. And, and mm-hmm. there are so many things that I think we take for granted that if, if we would be able to, uh, um, uh, appreciate, you know, that would be, uh, that would be good. You know, it's like, Oh, I get to sit next to somebody with a tubo on their lap, um, on the airplane. And, um, <laughs> you know, it, but it's like, well, that's great. I have a job and, and I, I, I'm able to do this and, you know, I can take care of my family and all that. And it's, it, we just got to think of it that way. Yeah. I like that. I like that. That's a nice, uh, kind of neurolinguistic hack. That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how about you? I guess I got a couple, a couple of resolutions, uh, but I think, um, the biggest one for me this coming year is probably to spend, uh, more time, uh, with my adorable son. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, when he was younger, um, especially in the early days, uh, traveling didn't have very many consequences. Um, but I'm noticing now that he's, uh, just in the last few months, he's starting to notice when I'm not there. Mm. Um, and, uh, and is kind of misses me when I leave the room and is delighted when I enter it. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, uh, I think, uh, finding ways of managing my time and managing my travel better, uh, so that I can, uh, spend more time, uh, with the boy. I think that would be great. Yep. Yep. And, and, uh, you know, maybe taking advantage of the video conferencing, but, you know, both when Mm -hmm. you're at home and when you're on the road as well to talk to, Yeah, talk to him at home. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Exactly. I, uh, you know, <laughs> moving into Elf in the Shelf territory, I've 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 played with the idea of like getting a drop cam or something and uh, installing it in his room. Um, mm-hmm. And I've got an extra iPad lying around here. Maybe I'll hook that up as a monitor, and uh, maybe there can just be a constant dad presence in his room. Um, yeah. Or maybe I get like a sixty-inch uh, flat-screen television mounted up on his wall, put a drop cam on top, and I just leave it on all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. so that, uh, he can, uh, so that he can see my, uh, all knowing, all seeing face. Uh, yeah. Benevolent. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And totally benevolent. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really just about keeping him, uh, keeping him on the, uh, on the moral and ethical straight and narrow. That's, yeah. Uh, and then you, you, you got to come up with music before the, the daily announcements and, and he has to do exercises <laughs> that's right. and that's right. And, that's right. And his, uh, his, uh, yeah, his two minutes of hate. Um, that's a, that's a, yeah. green beans. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's great. Uh, all right. Uh, so Dave, if, uh, if folks have suggestions, uh, for setting up, uh, my nursery pond at Panopticon, uh, where should, where should they go? Yeah. So they don't have to go to this site. They, they get to go to this site, right? They get to um, go to the site. That's right. Yeah. They get to go to the site. Um, so they get to go to, uh, dgshow.org. So D's and Dave. She's in Gunner Show dot org. All right. Well, uh, happy New Year, Dave. Yeah, you too. Ha- happy New Year, everybody. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs>